Welcome to JR Out Loud, the podcast of Jewish Renaissance magazine. I'm Judy Herman, and I'm really excited today because I'm hooking up with an old friend. I'm hooking yay. up. Yay, there he goes. <laughs> I'm hooking up with Henry Naylor, whom I have known. We are old muckers from the days of weekending, if anybody listening remembers the amazing weekly satire programme Weekending from around about the early 90s, isn't it, Henry? <laughs> Gosh, yeah, I know. We're showing our age, Judy. Yes, but, oh, well, you know, they liked to have these child writers then, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> that was a brilliant uh, programme, actually, as an introduction to, to young writers at the BBC staff, because literally anybody could count, turn up and come to the writers' room on a Wednesday, write jokes about the news, and if they were good enough, they'd get on air and they'd be on air on, on Friday. Yes. And a lot of, I think when you and I were there, Judy, there was a, a lot of really famous and well-known names in comedy who were starting out and used that show as a platform to, um, uh, as a gateway into the industry. Really. Absolutely. You know, people like Al Murray and... Uh, Richard ben Herring. And Richard Herring. Herring and Lee and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, Parsons and myself had a go. Yes. Carried Goat or, or that lot had a go. You, you know, some, some pretty big-name comedians started through that, I think. Now, you... I won't say you graduated from topical comedy to serious theatre because that makes it sound as if one's better than the other. But I did before we actually talk about your marvelous new pairing of plays that we're, we're actually here to talk about. I would love to actually just ask you about your your journey, but the trajectory <laughs> that took you from comedy and 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 we're talking very high profile comedy. We're talking Spitting Image and 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 Dead Ringers and all sorts, and then which I'm sure you should still do today if you wanted to, um, to writing plays. And I think some of those were just funny or not just funny, funny, satirical, whatever. And But then become more serious, even though you're still using the comedy. So can you just sort of fill me in? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I did that, uh, Judy, for a long time. I, w- I mean, I, d- I went from doing spitting image and doing various bits of telly stuff for things like Spitz and Jones and... Lenny Henry and people like that, and um, but I'd, I'd always used to do the satirical and comedic stuff. And um, Andy Parsons and I had a sketch show on Radio Two for a long time. For about uh, we did that for six or seven years, all about the week's news. We had one series when it coincided exactly with the war in Afghanistan, and you know, as you know, you and I know. There are periods uh, in the news when you're asking for a topical news show when there is nothing outwardly funny in the news and you've still got to write a half an hour's um, topical amusing material. Uh, and, and this coincided exactly with the war. And so Parsons and I were, were just um, watching all the news bulletins we could, just trying to find anything uh, funny. And um, what happened was, was I saw this one news report from Kabul. There was a journalist called William Reeve who was uh, reporting from Kabul just as the Northern Alliance and the Allies were about to attack uh, the Taliban. Um, and he, he was sort of sat on his chair and he was saying, well, I don't know if you can hear outside the back door. There's, um, there's loads of bombs going off and it sounds like uh, the, an attack is imminent. And um, that one, it was probably, they're getting really close. Did you hear that one? That one was very close indeed. And the next thing that happened was live on air, he got blown off his chair. Oh. The entire wall of the studio blew off. And the cameraman ran in front of the camera to check that he was okay. And then I nearly fell off my chair watching in my living room because the cameraman was my old flatmate from oh. university. And I had no idea. I knew he'd gone into the world of, of sort of news, but I had no idea he was doing this sort of stuff. And so... 
after the war war ended, I, I contacted him and I said, Phil, look, I'm. Uh, I, I was very concerned when we were watching the news, you know, in such detail. I never saw a single dead body on the news. And it just, I, I kind of found that sanitising. And, and in a way, you know, the BBC, I was told, had this policy of taste and decency and it wouldn't show war victims. Uh, uh, and and I, I thought, actually, that was indecent. I think if a war is committed in the name of your country by politicians you voted for, you should see the implications of your choices. Um, and so uh, so I had this idea for a play, which I wrote, it's the first one I wrote um, back in 2003, I think, called Finding Bin Laden. And it was all about the difference between what journalists see on the ground and what they actually broadcast on air. Uh, and um, and so I said to Phil, can you tell me, you know, what it's like as a journalist? What do you see? And Phil said, um, said, well, look, he said, the best thing to do is just to come out here. And I said, well, I can't come to Kabul. And he went, yeah, come on, come out here. I'll introduce wow. you to the BBC fixers. And so um, I went out there with a, a, a friend of mine. I've got this friend called Sam Maynard, who's just uh, a sublime photographer, just brilliant. Uh, but also he's just a real sort of Indiana Jones type person. If there's an adventure going, he's, uh, you know, in for it. And so, um, you know, I said, I'm going to Kabul. And he said, oh, I'll come with you. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so we all went together. And it, and it was a profoundly life-changing experience because, you, you know, up until that point, I'd only written jokes about the news, sneering from my laptop in front of the telly and, and sort of poking fun of the government. And, and actually going into an actual news event and experiencing it directly at first hand, uh, it made you realise, I don't want to sound pretentious, but it made you realise the importance of what you do. Uh, and that sometimes, you know, just little dismissive jokes are, are, are not enough. And it made me start to thinking, well, there are things I want to articulate through my art. I want, there's things I want to articulate which can't be just written in a three-minute sketch that need a longer format. And it made me realise that sort of like I didn't just want to write anything with my art. I wanted to write something and I wanted to articulate something which was... Um, uh, talk about sort of humanitarian issues more. It made me think about them more in a way which I didn't know until that point. I was just, I was into it more just to be a, a comedian and have a laugh. And after that, I suddenly thought, no, actually, there's a responsibility with, with this work. And, and that grew and grew until, and it took me a few years. So, you know, I had a period when, you, you know, the work dried up. I think sort of doing comedy, you hit sort of the 40 mark. And you're a bit too old for it. Oh dear, don't say that. You, you know, you can you can sort of you go on. The, you just uh, you get you get fed up. We're standing up in front of rooms full of drunks and thinking, I've done this a million times. Mm. Um, you know, you try and write sort of political and and sort of more challenging work, and sometimes an audience just isn't interested in that. They're just too drunk. Mm. Um, and so. Uh, you, you know, I hit a sort of point where I thought, well, either I give this out and do something else or I find a new avenue to it. I mean, my wife, who, who's a stand-up... Yeah, come um, on, Sarah Kendall, it's not just your wife who's a stand-up. Well, <laughs> she, yeah, she's Sarah Kendall. She's, yeah, she's, she's quite, so quite a major stand-up. She thinks very profoundly politically as well mm. and, and sort of uh, that encouraged me to take a more political stance in my work too. So I, I, I would wanted to. I sort of said, "Look, I'm going to have a go at writing a play," and I wanted to write a play called um, uh, about uh, 
Abu Ghraib. Mm. I want to because the, prison, the reason being mm. was I couldn't understand how people could have arrived at the choices that they made in that prison. The the the, the, the American guards. How did they become these these monsters? And and sort of there must have been. You know, I wanted to, to understand it, so I researched it like crazy. Now, I was originally going to write a comedy. Uh, I, you know, I thought for my first play, I'll write a comedy about the most difficult subject matter I can find just to show off. And then <laughs> when I started getting into it, I kind of thought, no, there's a more important... I, I've got an insight here, which I think most people don't know through my research. And so I ended up writing a straight play. And it was an extraordinary experience... Um, at the Edinburgh Festival because I turned up expecting my normal comedy crowd. Uh, sorry, sorry, I turned up with this play. I'd advertised it as a comedy because when the print copy went to brochure, I thought I was going to write a comedy, but sort of four months later, when it came on stage, I'd written something actually quite serious. And I had my usual comedy... Um, uh, well, I think fans is probably the wrong word, but people who... Uh, who liked my stuff turning up and just being sort of bamboozled and confused and thinking, you know, either being really shocked by, by the subject matter or being really bamboozled because they were expecting a comedy. <laughs> uh, but it actually went really well, that, Judy. I, 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 that won the French first. And wow, that kind of made me think, ah, right, What a start. This is, this is my, my new journey now. This is my new avenue. Mm. Yeah, well, so, but since then, there have been a number of plays, and there is a theme, isn't there? I mean, you know, you've, you've been, I love your idea of the Arabian nightmare. I mean, you know, that, that, I think from that title being so clever, I think, isn't the whole point that however serious it is, you still know how to you leaven it with humour, I'm guessing, or to be hard-hitting yeah. with it? It's, I mean, I think it's important, you know, that you do that. I mean, we'll come on to the plays we want to talk about today, which we, we've managed to talk for an awfully long time without actually even mentioning them, but I'm hey. Sorry. No, no, it's important to get your get get it sorted how you got there. But, you know, I, I cannot imagine you writing without humour, and, and I think that must be, it's probably why it's one of the reasons why they're successful. Well, undoubtedly, I mean, I think sort of certainly when you're dealing with weighty subject matter, mm. there's, a, there's a danger, you don't want to end up being preachy. I think you've got to give people a, a ripping yarn of a narrative, but also humour also, I think sort of like my friends who do work on the front line of journalism, I've got a couple of friends who are war correspondents, and they, they are genuinely the funniest people mm. I know. They are hilarious. And the stuff they've seen is just unspeakable. And I think it's a coping mechanism. Mm. So um, I think if you are writing about tragic material, you have to put humour in it. Yeah. Now, so the, coming to these, I know there have been lots of other plays. They, I, they seem to pretty well always win, win Fringe Firsts and garner fantastic reviews and come to London. I get I get these newsletters from you saying, hey, I'm back again, <laughs> very often at the Arcola, which is the theatre in uh, Dalston, where the, these marvellous theatre in Dalston, love that theatre, yeah. um, where, where, where this um, double bill is taking place. Now, Borders and Games, Borders is set, more like now, really, isn't it? Whereas, yes. and it's got oh issues that we would possibly only understand. So now, the whole thing about celebrity culture—I know it's always been there, but it's so strong now. Um, yeah. So we, we should perhaps we'll just sort of talk into why those they go together. The other one, of course, is why you're on Jewish Renaissance, um, which is this play called Games, which deals with two 
women, Jewish women athletes, who and their what they went through in relation to the 1936 Munich Olympics. One of them competing, the other one being well, both of them suffering a lot of cruelty. I think, and one, yeah. and the the other one doing an awful lot towards competing and then not competing. So there's a, there's a lot to talk about. So let's get to that. But I just wondered if you want to just quickly sum up um, borders and tell me how they they resonate together. Well, borders is a story of how the West has kind of lost its soul. I think. I think uh, uh, it basically came out of the idea that there are hundreds of thousands of people dying in the Mediterranean, and yet the front pages of the Western newspapers are all about, I don't know, Katy Perry, Jordan, whoever whoever is the, the latest celebrity of the day. Uh, and it's told through the stories of, of two artists. One is like a Western paparazzi guy. He started out as a, a photographer with really good intentions. He wanted to change the world. He went around the world photographing um, third world disasters, hoping to raise awareness. And gradually he got sucked into the world of celebrity. And in the end, he, he just becomes almost like Robbie Williams as private photographer. Um, the other one is a Syrian graffiti artist who um, is doesn't seek any reward for her art at all. She's kind of like the opposite. She's not interested in the celebrity lifestyle. She just wants regime change. Uh, and it, it kind of talks about the nature of what, we celebrate in art what should what should we be rewarding should we be rewarding people who are taking these great celebrity pictures or should we be rewarding somebody who has got a deeper political and social meaning to their art yeah and I, I, I love the idea of of this, this this woman graffiti artist actually because you, you know that's Syria is the thing that we should be possibly most ashamed of at the moment. I don't know we've got a lot to be ashamed about, haven't we? Really, we in the West, but that you know every day your heart is broken by what's going on there, and you can't understand how it's happening. But I love your idea. I mean, are, is it based on a real story? And there must be graffiti artists out there, I guess. And a woman. No, well, actually, the, the Syrian civil war started through an act of graffiti. I mean. Yeah. Uh, it, really? what, what happened was at the time of the Arab Spring, some school kids wrote on the side of a school uh, school wall in in the town of Dera. Uh, they basically, you're next, Bashir. Uh, and uh, what Assad did, he sent his thugs oh. out. They arrested a load of these kids and tortured them. Oh. You know, fifteen year old school. And I think uh, I don't know. I think it's important to sort of make people aware of why these what these refugees have been fleeing from mm. and why they deserve compassion you know so yeah well you know you, i'm on side anyway but let's hope i mean let's hope that you and i and the people who come to sea borders are not all in the same silo because you need some people from some of the other silos to come don't you really but um there are plenty of other people out there that you need to reach so that's what you're going to do going back to the somewhat I think with games by because people will want to come and see games because it just because it's about the Munich Olympics just because it's about these two iconic women so you're going to tell me all about it and then I, if we can talk about the resonance between the two because bringing them together can't just be because you wrote them I'm sure <laughs> well, I hope not, anyway. With games, I think it's, it's, a, it's one of those shows that has become very timely and, and very relevant, uh, unfortunately, because it, it's... Uh, I, I mean, I, I came up with the idea for it, Judy, sat in a bar 
with uh, my actress, uh, w w uh, called Abital Lebova. He's a Russian Jewish. Yeah, um, clearly actress. Jewish. I could she tell. Was extraordinary. Yeah. Actually, mm. she's got incredible mm. build. Looked like an athlete. Um, we were uh, on tour in Cape Verde of all places. Oh wow! Yes. <laughs> uh, but we didn't, and we were the only two English-speaking people there, pretty much. Uh, and so we were basically stuck in a bar for an evening. I'm a 52-year-old bloke. She's this glamorous 26-year-old. And uh, so he was just thinking of something to, to talk about. And I said, oh, I should really write something for you next. Uh, and um, I said, you you know, you're sort of German-Jewish. You sort of uh, you look like an athlete. Let's just type something in Google, see what it comes up with. Uh, and we just typed in this, uh, we, we typed it in and, and sat inside this bar for a couple of hours. We just came up, we came across the story of Helena Meyer, who is this incredibly tragic figure, really. She was, she was a, a wonderful fencer. She was kind of like the David Beckham of Germany in, in, uh, uh, in the late 20s. Um, in that she won the gold medal at the 1928 Olympics at a time when Germany had only just been readmitted into the Games after the First World War. And she became overnight a, a, a sensation. She was a beautiful young woman, yeah. uh, wonderfully talented, uh, 17 years old, and kind of represented a new Germany. Uh, and she, she became sort of like a national heroine. And she she was expected to win the Olympics for the next twenty years. You know she was she was that good, but at the thirty two games, she lost her title because two hours before she was due to fight, uh, she was told that her boyfriend had just been killed in a shipping accident. Oh, it was completely scrambled with her mind, and she sort mm. of she lost the title, and she was determined to win it back, but she was German Jewish. And when it came to the 1936 Olympics, Hitler was trying to exclude all Jews from competing. Uh, and um, the Americans were saying, look, unless you let Jewish athletes compete, we're not going to come. And the boycott was very real. Uh, it seemed very real. I mean, I think 43% of the American public uh, at one point said that they should uh, boycott the games. Um, uh uh, but Hitler, Hitler was uh, Hitler's argument was, well, there aren't any Jewish athletes good enough. We would use them, but oh, there aren't any. But the Americans said, well, one of uh, there's a German Jewish athlete who is studying in California at the moment, who won the 1928 Olympics, who lost in 32. I think she's probably good enough. Mm. And this is what Helena Meyer was doing. She was it. She was uh, uh, she was in um, America studying at the time. And so she almost she became the centre of this political fight. I mean, basically, the Americans were insisting on sort of some, some fair representation for Jewish athletes. Uh, and it really came down to her, you, you know, sort of like if she accepted a place on the Games, then, then they would go ahead, which seemed, you know, remarkably unfair on poor her. It's just, just an athlete who really didn't seem to think much about politics. Uh, there was also... Another athlete called Gretel Bergman, who was a high jumper, and she was extraordinary because um, she uh, she was much younger than Helena Meyer. And when she was training and sort of like developing as an athlete, Jewish athletes had all the facilities removed from them. They they could only really enter Maccabee events. They couldn't really mm. um, be allowed to uh, compete against Aryans. They had all the worst facilities. Uh, and so it was incredibly unfair. You know, no wonder Jewish athletes couldn't compete at the time. 
Um, but in her particular case, it just made her better. She went, I will show you, you know, you, you're not going to hold me down. And she got better and better and better. Uh, and the Nazis were trying to exclude her from the games, looking for any old excuse to drop her. And a month before the Olympics in 36, they had a, basically a trial at the Adolf Hitler Stadium in Stuttgart, and she was allowed to compete for about the first time uh, uh, against Aryans. And she nailed it. She didn't just beat all the competition. I think she beat all the competition by 20 centimetres, which is enormous mm, in high-jumping terms. Yeah. And not only that, she broke the European record, and she thought she was nailed on to compete. And yet, the minute the Americans set off to come over for the Games... The Nazis wrote to her and said, oh, thank you very much for applying for the Games. Yeah, yeah your performances haven't been good enough. Sorry, you can't compete. Uh, and so this poor woman, who was whose jump I, I think would have won the gold medal at Berlin, wasn't allowed to compete purely on the grounds of race. Uh, and so, so it, it's an extraordinary story, and one which has been forgotten. And, and I think... I think it's really important to remind ourselves in these times when anti-Semitism seems to be creeping back into society, just to remind people where it can lead, just to remind people where the language that, uh, uh, that people like Trump and members of the Labour Party, I'm sad to say, yes. have been using. Very sad. Uh, yeah. And there are, there are Tory politicians as well that are sharing anti-Semitic values. We should, we, I think all of us, I have a human and humane duty to stop this now. And we need to remind people where this where this can lead and where this is coming from. Uh, and so as a result, I wrote this play. And and, um, and and like I say, unfortunately, it's become more and more topical. Mm. I mean, I wrote it in April, uh, and I, there were, there's lines in it where I was reminding the audience, trying to link it to today's event. Mm. So I had... Uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of talking about Hitler, saying Hitler wanted to drain the swamp of Weimar and uh, Hitler wanted to make Germany great again, tying in the language directly. Ah, yes, the language of Trump, yes. Yeah, so I made all these references, which, which made it sort of, you know, say, look, this is relevant. By the time the show came out in, in, in August, I wouldn't have needed to put those lines in the play. Everybody knew why it was relevant mm, because, mm. like, the whole... Labour Party scandal uh, had exploded over the papers. Uh, and um, so, uh, yeah, you know, and it, it gave the show uh, an unfortunate relevance. Uh, and so, uh, um, it, you know, it sold very well in Edinburgh. It, it sold out its entire run. I just think it's a very important show for now. And, and I think one of the problems is, I think everybody's aware of the Holocaust. Uh, I think... But the problem is, is we haven't got a human face on it. I think the, the mm. danger, and this is, the, this is where it ties in with borders, when you hear 600,000 people are drowning in the Mediterranean, it's hard to imagine that. It's much easier to imagine one person drowning in the Mediterranean, one person you know. And if you have that emotional and personal connection with one person, you, you can't have an emotional connection with that, that huge amount of numbers. No. And I think the problem today is... We're losing, as, as members of the Holocaust generation are dying off, we're losing that personal connection. And I think it's important, therefore, to remind the public of personal stories 
that happened to individuals and to remind the public uh, of evils of anti-Semitism and the evils of fascism and Nazism. So that's why this piece, I think, is particularly relevant for today. Yeah, yeah. well, you actually have personalised it pretty well, though, haven't you? We should probably say, shouldn't we, that Helen looked like your typical Aryan, didn't she? I mean, she was blonde, she had these yes. great big blonde plaits. There was even a stamp I found of her. She appeared yeah, on the yeah. stamp with the plaits, and you, now your first performer definitely was a dead ringer for her, and with the plaits and the whole bit, I think. Now, you've, I believe you've changed performers on that one, am I right? You've got a different... Yes, that's right. I mean, yeah. uh, we've got, uh, there's a, a girl called Sophie Shad performing, and again, yeah. she's got a very strong personal connection. This is it. This is why I want you to talk about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah mm. because like Sophie Shad, uh, her grandfather uh, went to Auschwitz mm. and, and survived the war. So, you know, it resonates very strongly with her, this story. Mm. She's wonderfully articulate about it. I mean, so, I, you know, I should send her your way at some point. Yes, yeah, so uh, well, maybe like she's, we could do that. Yeah. Um, she's made films about it. Yes, and, I, I've uh, been reading about her films. She's actually made a film. Is that where Kitty, Kitty Hart Moxon comes in? Yes. Yes. She she yeah. is a survivor, isn't she? Yes, yeah, she's related that, to, that, to, to Kitty. So yeah, and she's made uh, a film about Kitty. Has she? She made a film about uh, certainly yeah. about the Holocaust. Yeah. yeah, and a survivor. So so she's actually a filmmaker as well as a, as an actor. It's so far. And, and a wonderful actress as well. I mean, mm. she for a long time she was. Um, uh, is it the little, uh, is it little Croisette or something? <laughs> I probably got the name wrong. From Les Miserables. You know, oh, Cosette, yes. Group. She played, she that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was one of the Cosettes in yes. in, in, in that. And um, I think she's actually done it on the radio as well. Obviously, it wouldn't yes, be in a music, it would be as a drama, not as a musical, but I think she has. Yeah, so clearly, you know, she's she's got impeccable credentials in every possible direction, hasn't she? So you've had two performers in a row who've actually been, you know, shoe-ins for this role, haven't you? Yeah. Mm, of Helena. Yeah. And so now you need to tell me a little bit about... Te I love this name, Tessie Orange Turner, the best name ever. And I looked her up and I found this wonderful tweet that it seems that where you've been rehearsing was somewhere that um, the character she's playing, Gretel, actually trained at, at the yes. Polytechnic. So a little bit more about that story and particularly about like the wonderful Tessie. <laughs> I'm assuming she's well, wonderful. Uh, yeah, Tessie's um, Tessie's a, a mixed race performer. Uh, we cast her uh, because we wanted to say that prejudice is happening to all communities. Of course it is. So I think it was very important to find a a Jewish actress who, who mm. uh, un understood stood the issues from the Jewish community's perspective in, in one role. Uh, we cast Tessie just to sort of say, look, this is not just about anti-Semitism. This is about humanity. Mm, of course this is about is. humanitarian values. This is about how we treat each other. That racism is, is not acceptable to, towards any community. And I think, what, I think people seem to tolerate anti-Semitism who wouldn't tolerate racism towards other, other communities. Well, there you are. That's the Labour story in one ridiculous. sentence, isn't it, actually? Yes, totally. Mm. I, I think that's exactly exactly what it is. You know, racism is racism. Yes, totally. Well, I mean, so is ageism, sexism and all the other isms. But, you know, I mean, just my personal bugbear very quickly before I go back to what we're talking about is that God forbid if there'd been anything like the internet and Twitter and all that um, trolling... Back in the days of Hitler, I mean, you know, maybe it would have been, I don't think there'd be any Jews left at all. You know, I mean, that is yeah. the most pernicious thing from my point of view, that 
like-minded individuals can find each other and they're not people whose minds I like, if you see what I mean. Yes. I mean, we should go on and talk about the play a little bit more. The, these women didn't meet, but you do have the meeting, is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, I think it's one of those things where... It, I, I mean, one of the main themes running through it is about identity and how do we, do, do we define ourselves? Can we, can we choose our identity or are you the identity that society chooses for you? And I, and I wanted those forces to be represented through different characters and there's the kind of like the dialogue and interplay they have with each other is the working out of the interplay of those values because i think it reflects the debates we're having today in terms of mm. um in society there's uh, a lot of excellent work in terms of like making people say i choose how i identify but I, one thing i wanted to throw into the mix was Yes, brilliant. We should all be able to choose how we identify. We should all respect how other, everybody else chooses to identify as well. But more importantly, we need to also um, remember, keep in touch with our own humanity uh, and not lose sight of the bigger picture. Because I think one of the problems at the moment is, is I mean, I'm centre-left in terms of politics. Mm. And I think what the, the problem I find with the left is that the greatest critics of the left are the left. They tear each other apart. Mm. Uh, and, and the left all seem to fight as individuals. But there's a larger and bigger enemy, which maybe we should all be turning our guns to guns on uh, and, and fighting. Uh, and we shouldn't lose sight of that when we're choosing to assert our own, our own individualism. So, yes, we are all individuals, but we should also remember that we're members of a, a bigger community, the, the community of humanity. Uh, and, and so when uh, extremist forces are at work, that's what we should be fighting, not each other. Yeah, oh, well, you'd think that was a sort of no-brainer, wouldn't you? But, you but know, it doesn't seem to happen. No, it needs to be said okay. as, you know, again and again. So there is a story in this that you've sort of embroidered on what, what we know about these two women, is that right? Yeah, I mean uh, in, certainly in the case of Helena Meyer uh, not a lot is known about her she didn't really talk about what happened, I, I mean she's most she's kind of been forgotten by history to be honestly uh, with you Judy because uh, when she she won a medal, I don't want to give away too much mm. about the plot, but she won mm. a medal, and when she stood on the podium, she gave the Heil Hitler salute. Working out why she did it was mm. uh, was something that we wanted to, to talk about in the play. And I think sort of, you, you know, I think one of the... Where I feel sorry for her was she had family living in Germany. If she just stood on the podium and not given the salute, she would have seriously been endangering the lives of the people she loved. Yes, well, that's to obviously totally true. But then, you know, that's what you're saying, is that history then judges her. Yeah, hers is quite a sad story, isn't it? Yes, she does. She, does, mm. she goes to America and she sort of plies a trade as a fencer. And she wins yeah. the American National Championships, I think, eight times in a row yeah. or something extraordinary like that. I mean, she was a phenomenal talent, but has been forgotten by history because... Mm. I think we're judging her from the perspective of... Well, she's been judged from the perspective to, uh, today rather than 1936. Mm. And I think also in 1936, things like the, the Heil Hitler salute and the swastika meant something different uh, from what they meant in 1945, yeah. when people knew the full implications of the Holocaust. 
Uh, you know, and I think it's worth remembering that the England football team gave the Heil Hitler salute as late as I think it was 1938. Really? Uh, in in a in an international friendly. Um, I see. Uh, and so. Uh, you know, you, you know mm. these symbols have changed uh, as, as history has progressed. Yeah, I can see that. So in 1936, it's even earlier than that. So, yeah, we do have to see it in that lens of history. But um, I've been reading here, she was inducted into the USFA Hall of Fame in 1963. She's named one of the top 100 female athletes. Um, and yet, as you say, you know, it's apparently a little known story. I, I don't suppose it's a brilliant career move dying either, which is she seems to sadly have done very early, poor soul. So, uh, yeah, October 53. She never talked about it. Mm. But uh, I, I honestly think, actually, I mean, in our, in the show that we've, in my version of the show, she thinks a lot about being an individual and about asserting her own individualism. Mm. Uh, and uh, she's not a team player at all. Mm. Uh, but I wonder how much she thought about politics. I think she was probably just a sports person who wanted to do her job yeah. uh, and didn't think beyond that, really. And mm. But I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I think it made it, made it more relevant for, to, for today to make her somebody who sort of was making it more of a, a political choice to, mm. to choose not to identify with anybody, that she wanted to choose her own identity. Well, that makes sense. Now, what, what, there's a lot more about Gretel Bergman because she had all sorts of she had all sorts of tributes played to her. There seems to be a sports a sports hall named after her. I don't know what else. Yeah, no. What does it say here? Yeah, and there's plaques and um, that she was inducted into the Jewish Hall of Fame. So, she, and and she did the other good career move of living on to a great age. That always helps. Oh, I think it does help. Yeah, she had last year. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Incredible. Does she know anything about this play? I think she and her husband, I think, sort of were, were 60 years together or something like that. It was, it was amazing. I mean, she sounds a phenomenal woman, yeah. really phenomenal. I mean, sort of like, you know, I, I, the guts of her as well, just to sort of, you know, fight and fight and try to sort of disprove the Nazis' Uh, racial theories by by just sheer excellence, uh, and which she did, you know, and uh, in spades, you know, now incredible woman. So it seems that she had gone back to Germany, but she seems to have more more ownership of her own story, from what I can make out. She was obviously a very yeah. powerful individual. You know, she made her own choices, and she emigrated in thirty seven into New York, and she married and you know as you say 60 years of, of marriage and um, there seems to have been a film about her in 2009 called Berlin 36 so you presumably you've seen that have you I haven't I deliberately mm. avoided it ah oh, right sensible I, yes I, I, I heard about it when I was about three months into my research and mm. I thought do you know what I, I, I don't want to see this because it, I, you, you know you, you try not to get influenced by other mm. things and I, I didn't want to see it yeah no no I completely understand that and it will make your play i would imagine all the more original you know cause yeah yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Undoubtedly. i mean the reality is i don't think they 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 must have been aware of each other bergman and meyer but in the story i've got them sort of bumping into each other at training camps mm. and at uh you know bumping into each other before the games and and, and you know I, I engineer all sorts of meetings which may or may not have taken place um purely just for the sake of uh, having the two forces talking to each other and sort of 
clashing swords with each other almost. Oh, I like clashing swords, yes, fencing foils, presumably. <laughs> yeah. You've got a director, presumably a, a woman that you really trust. Louise Scarning is, is just magnificent. She's one mm. of the calmest people I've ever met. Louise Scarning, I think she's Scorning. I think Scorning. She's Danish, and what I, I kind of need that. I think my, the creative process for me is incredibly chaotic. So I need that calm hand, that calm mm. uh, outsider who knows her stuff uh, and can steer it, but help me see the wood from the trees and I'm writing it. Right, well, I really can't wait to see it. I'm so looking forward to this, to both plays and, I mean, and the way they resonate together. So I suppose we know what you want us to take away from it, but if you want to just sum up... That would be lovely. Just to sum up, I just think we need to be kinder and listen to each other more. I mm. think sort of, uh, I, I think in the age of the internet, everybody's screaming at each other. I think society's changing incredibly fast. And I think we just need to take a step back uh, and remember humanity trumps all. Well, that's the best use of the word Trump that I've heard for a while. <laughs> when I said it, I thought, oh, God, do I really want to no, no, let's, with his name in it? Yeah, we're reclaiming it. We're reclaiming it for humanity, quite literally. Oh, Henry, Henry Naylor, thank you so much for talking it's to me for, yeah, for, for J.R. Out Loud and more anon when I've seen the play. Thank you.